Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. How we react to a film is sometimes as arbitrary as what we did or didn't eat for breakfast that day. But sometimes what colors our understanding is something bigger than all of us. As part of Film Comment Selects, the magazine's annual screening series at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, we hosted a live edition of the podcast talking about films we think of differently post-Trump. Some are films we've already seen in 2016. Others are older titles that felt urgent to revisit now. Joining us were Mark Harris, author of Pictures at a Revolution and Film Comments Cinema 67 Revisited column, Fariha Zaman, filmmaker, critic, and production manager for Field of Vision, Genevieve Yu, assistant professor of culture and media at The New School, and Nicholas Rapold, Film Comments editor. The discussion took place after a screening of Louis Malle's documentary, God's Country, which paints a portrait of Glencoe, Minnesota, and its inhabitants. Unfortunately, the first minute or so of the event wasn't recorded, so we joined things as Nick describes the film. What happened with Louis Malle is that he, he went there to film in, in, I guess, the late 70s, and then he came back to film again, uh, I suppose that was after Reagan's re-election. Yeah. And so uh, the, the film has this interesting structure where the bulk of it is the earlier footage, and then at the end you have this kind of coda where he's revisiting people. So there's definitely a before and after element on it. In, in our year-end issue, I wrote an essay that was called Before and After, uh, and the general idea is election 2016, how it changed the way you feel about certain films and the way certain films uh, look differently. Uh, it's like the light has changed a little on a lot of films. Um, and for me, I mean, I, I have a number of them. I'm sure we all have certain films. But for me, one of them was Silence, for example, the Martin Scorsese film. It's set in 16th century, 15th century Japan. I'll say them both. You can cut out the wrong one. <laughs> um, and uh, it's, it's about uh, Catholic missionaries who are searching for a, a, a colleague who is... Uh, a mentor. A mentor. Mentor who has uh, sort of disappeared. Um, and they're trying to pick up the scent and find him. But they can't do so openly uh, because Catholicism at the time in Japan cannot be practiced openly because there's a crackdown on it. And it's it's sort of done in secret. And so I saw that movie very early on before the election. And then I saw it again afterwards. And it's, it's obviously a film about religious persecution uh, to a large extent, but that just hit home even more uh, when I revisited it afterwards, just because the general mood in November and December in certain precincts and in certain minds, including my own, was just feeling besieged, suddenly besieged, like the ground had kind of like been shaken underneath you and you didn't know yeah, uncertainty and, and fearfulness and just the sense that certain assumptions you had about basic practices of human decency and respect uh, were no longer operative or were no longer driving people's decisions or did not seem to be driving people's decisions from everything you you know would have witnessed in how the election played out. You know, we can all have different opinions about to what extent that's true or not. And again, it's a feeling. It, what it was, it was a feeling at the time of feeling besieged. So, you know, when I saw Silence again, that that sense of, first of all, kind of topsy-turvy, upside-down world, because the movie, your surrogate in the movie is is these, you know, Catholic missionaries in Japan. So already it's it's a little um, 
backwards, and we'll have a little de debate around how you identify, who you identify it with in the movie. It's just, it's just that sense of an intensified sense of fearfulness and persecution and huntedness. Whereas before, maybe it was almost a sense of somehow faith surviving in, against all odds, even though the movie is, is very torturous in its uh, grappling with that. Fariha, what about you? Um, well, actually, uh, Nick and I began a conversation pre-panel about how um, I went the opposite way about silence. Um, and I think it's an incredibly um, sensitive and beautifully made film, and it tackles a lot of complex things. So just disclaim up front, in, in no way do I want to say that it is solely the criticisms that I have about it. But I think in a post-election world, I feel sort of much more, I don't know, there's like an anger brimming closer to the surface about representation. And there's definitely overtones of colonialism in the film to me. Well, it's not, it's not subtle. It's like, it it's is subtle. what it is. And it, it's, yeah, it's something that I struggle with um, as a filmmaker as well. Like, I, I'm always frustrated by um, critics or other people in film who say, like, there's only one way to do something, essentially, that, like, you're not allowed to make a story from this perspective anymore. I don't want to see a world with only one kind of film, but on the other hand, I don't want to see a world in which this is predominantly the kind of perspective that I see. And I did feel that strongly while watching Silence. While I, it's not that I'm unable to relate to a white male character, there's something that's sort of very expected about seeing it through the lens of this Western culture. The culture that's being besieged is a Western Christian culture. And I did feel at times that there was a sense of like, we just can't wrap our minds around the other. Like, the, the yeah. savages have undone us. Well, but is that, but the Japanese feel besieged by Christianity, which is why they wipe it out. Because this was, this was, you know, it's based on a novelized Shusako Endo, who is a Japanese Catholic. He was putting himself in the minds of white European males. Like, he was yeah. doing something that, you know. So then what is it, how does it work when a white male takes on the story right. that a Japanese man has... He's filling in the gaps. And, and again, like I said, if, if the movie weren't so good, if it didn't yeah. actually get, get at this like constant interplay where you are being asked to say, like, well, which one is actually better in some sense, um, then it would just be bad and offensive. But right. instead, it's something that I'm, I'm like struggling with feeling uncomfortable about in moments. Yeah. This is a film that explores faith and the idea of faith. And so this othering and being horrified by the other, it's, it's so tied up with religion certainly not excusing it, the disgust that Andrew Garfield feels that they're like worshiping the son instead of, you know, the father, the son, the Holy Spirit, whatever. But wait, is that the right thing? See, I don't even know. I don't even know. Well, the, the, the interesting thing for <laughs> Those me three? is I come from catechism. a religious background that yeah. that is currently persecuted in, right. in American culture. I, um, my family's Muslim. And I've never, the, the thing that I did really relate to in the film is that I, I'm not actually particularly religious, but I've never identified more with that part of my background as an identity than I do now because it feels constantly attacked and, yeah. and that it's acceptable to do so in a public arena and, and by um, uh, public leadership. So uh, that, well, I every, understood that feeling. <laughs> because, I mean, the film that I was going to talk about is was um, A Grin Without a Cat. And there's a moment in the film where Chris Marcus says, you know, the state is invisible. And the de point of a demonstration is to push the state and the state pushes back. But if you're a Muslim in America, the state is always pushing on you. It is, it, it is at the airport, it is at, or if you are an immigrant, it is on the seven train, it is pulling you off, it is everywhere. And so it's just like, 
it's not like you're identifying with this more now because it's like, oh, it's I'm persecuted. It's cool to feel persecuted. It's, no, it's horrible. It's fucking horrible. <laughs> you're being asked to do that. One other thing that also was just uh, interesting is the idea of a dominant religion and, and majority religion and, and not as well. That's also, I think, what came to mind when, when I was watching before and after because you know, religion is such a loaded and at the same time central place in American culture and American politics. So it was just interesting to see a movie again where a dominant, a typically dominant religion, at least worldwide, Catholicism is in the movie suddenly fighting for survival. But it's yeah, obviously there are all these other com mm -hmm. these complex facets to it as well. Yeah, and it's also just interesting, I think, and challenging, and probably part of the reason why the movie didn't do so hot at the box office is because it's asking you to do things with faith that movies usually don't ask you to do. You know, faith is not this perfect redeeming thing. It's not God is not dead. It is something very sticky and you have to really wrestle with it and it's really asking you to do something and I don't think everyone's comfortable doing that even if they are super religious. Yes, self-doubt was not exactly a common characteristic in, <laughs> mm -mm. Um, uh, in the election. Yeah, but Mark, what about you? What film did you want to talk about? We were asked to think about films beforehand that, that our perceptions of have changed since the election and I've been I, I tried to think about that in both a positive and a negative direction the positive one was pretty easy for me because the the movie that uh, jumped right out at me was um, I'm not your Negro mm -hmm. which I, I certainly would have admired before the election but I think has particular resonance uh, at a moment when you know we're all trying to for, for those of us who feel sort of powerless with rage um, and and frustration and unsure about how to proceed in a system in which so much is stacked against us. The inspiration of James Baldwin, who you know lived his entire life under uh, circumstances where everything conspired to marginalize him, and just met it with this kind of ferocious, calm, focused truth telling, almost as a mission. I found particularly inspiring, I think, post-election. And I mean, it's, it's interesting, you, you talked about coming from a Muslim background, and I think a lot of us, the, over this last year, I felt like much more the things I am that are hated than I ever have before. Like, I've never been gayer. I've never been more of a Jew, and I've never been more of a journalist. Um, like, I'm, I'm very aware that I'm, you know. Checking a lot of boxes. Right, I, like, yes. It, it, those three things get me through the, we don't want white guys in this discussion door. I get to come in through a side door, the gay side door. But, um, so one movie that, you know, I've always really loved is All the President's Men. And I really hope that four years from now, journalists are, going to be seen among the heroes of this era and that will be up to us you know we have a lot to live up to and certainly we have a lot to live down and a lot to apologize for but seeing all the president's men recently i was really struck by one thing which is that work is so slow and yeah. so hard and so private it takes so long you have to be dogged and you're just hoping and hoping and hoping for a break and digging through a haystack to find a needle. And it is the exact opposite of what Woodward and Bernstein did of kind of publicly performative 
you know, <laughs> they are pre-Twitter journalists. They're, right. they're not into sort of preeningly announcing how much they hated Richard Nixon. They were just doing their jobs. And, and I found it, as, as someone who's fairly addicted to Twitter myself, I found it really inspiring to be reminded of the hard private work that is investigative journalism. Maybe I should save my negative examples for when the conversation takes an ugly turn. <laughs> <laughs> I remember watching that film for the first time in high school in a journalism class. and being struck by how beautiful they make these contemplative moments where it's, there's, I think it's, isn't it the night of the election where it's like, it's sort of zooming in on the TV with Richard Nixon on, and it's just like such an amazing, quiet moment in, it turns something like you say that's very quiet and introspective. It doesn't make it flashy, it doesn't make it sexy, but it makes it intense in the way that you have to be intensely focused to be a writer, to be someone who is doing this very serious fucking work. So it, it's it's a it's one of I think one of the best movies about journalism. Yeah, I mean I think the makers of Spotlight must have really studied all the president's men, and I don't mean that condescendingly. I mean it in a good way because you know in both of those movies you, you see journalists as very small people against huge backdrops. They're which is tiny. reality, right? As I opposed mean, to what the president says, where it's like all these thousands of journalists who work at different outlets they're all conspiring against me and right. you, the, my supporters. Whereas, you know, you're 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 a little figure against the monument of a public institution or um, a, a governmental system, or of your own newsroom hierarchy. And that's something that all the president's men finds ways to constantly remind you of visually. So I think it's a great, a great watch. And, and we've all seen so many movies that end with typography on the screen telling you how it all turned out. And All the President's Men is one of those movies, but it does it in this unbelievably inspiring way, which is that after you have watched two plus hours of all this hard work, the headlines and dates start cascading. It's like it reaches critical mass and then only in type do you see the whole house of cards come tumbling down. But the journey isn't about the house of cards tumbling down. The journey is to that moment when finally a synthesis of journalism and of concerned public officials and of judges with integrity and of elected officials with integrity is reached. It's a good movie to hold on to at this fraught moment. I'm going to dissent. I, I thought about all the president's men too. So I, there's a, an additional edge that emer appeared for me with that film that I hadn't considered. And I've been watching that film since I was... I grew up with that film um, and admired it. It's, it's the interference of the FBI um, and the state intelligence apparatus, in, which in current context seems all the more nefarious and shadowy. So there was this thing that I didn't quite notice before when I watched the heroism of, of the journalists in that film that now feels like a, a really open question, the, the interference of um, these intelligence agencies. One thing from Silence that I took that I was really struck by when I saw it was the minimalism of its composition and the world in which it existed as being intensely physical in the sense that you have this landscape and a lot of smoke, but also this very rare, you know, the, the icon, the physical artifact. This is something that Nick Pinkerton and Scorsese talked about in their interview. And I was thinking about these visible signs of a regime, of a, of a hegemonic order. And it made me think about how does power now uh, reveal itself in these visible ways? Um, and Violet, as you were talking about the Chris Marker, the invisibility, how power often wants to be invisible. So the film that came to my mind as a more urgent 
film to keep to be thinking about was this documentary from last year, The Prison in Twelve Landscapes mm. by Brett Story, which takes as its premise that the prison system as it exists is not something that always takes ready visual form. That in fact, it's not just brick and mortar penitentiaries, but there are all manners of industries and activities that are deeply tied into the prison system that we wouldn't expect. And what's uh, very patiently laid out in her film in 12 vignettes is unraveling these threads and making these connections. And to me, that feels just all the more important and urgent to be able to see uh, the ways in which power is operating in surreptitious ways um, and not in just this flood of, you know, all caps tweets and executive orders and flailings, right? That there's another way in which power works in more secretive, sneaky ways. Yeah. Again, to return to the Chris Marker film, like, it was, I saw the last time I watched it was at Light Industry when they had this day long memorial for Chris Marker where they showed all of his films. And I was there from like 10 in the morning until like, nine o'clock at night and so it was just really overwhelming and it wasn't an emotional experience but watching it now feeling this need to be involved and engaged and push back and like who what is a model for resistance it was so emotional that it was like i cried a few times because it's like it's easy to look at the president and the rally he gave last night where he basically gave like a campaign speech because I don't know, his ego needed a boost and he needed to be surrounded by people who loved him or something. It's easy to feel like the world is in chaos and that everything you know has been thrown off the table and like everything, nothing makes sense anymore. And it's like, well, no, there are people working to make the world like this. And there are people working to get rid of people like Salvador Allende. And they still, those people still exist. And just because the face of it is messy and gross and strange and loud, those people still exist and they're working to make the world a certain way. And you just have to be like very vigilant and keep pushing back. And like the end of the film, I mean, is especially moving where he, Chris Marker uses this footage of these wolves that they started doing these, like people would get in a helicopter and they would go and like shoot these wolves to eliminate this wolf problem. And at the end he says, some wolves survived. And it's like a very emotional moment. Um, especially because one of the wolves, like they, it's it's this footage of these wolves like cha basically chasing the helicopter, and one of the wolves like looks right at the helicopter and like yells at it, and it it, sh it still gets shot, but it's like this like such a perfect metaphor for defiance and like what it putting yourself in physical danger, putting yourself into these situations that are uncomfortable and messy and horrible, but still not giving up and not having like. Well, let's maybe be measured. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. What's a practical solution? Like maybe we can work with this. You know, I'll confirm divorce and maybe like not confirm this other guy. Like it's just such a powerful, important, emotional, messy thing. So I don't know. Mess me up for a few days. Somebody remind me what the name of the marker film is that is just a single date. I'm just totally blanking. And I think it's an interesting marker counterpoint as far as his approach to political subject matter because that film is not explicitly political at all. And I, f I find that at this moment, I keep being drawn to these opposite poles, like either something that is 
that doesn't reduce by uh, trying to ask these sort of simplistic questions. Um, what's incredible about that film is he doesn't, or at least you never hear him ask an explicit political question. He just walks around asking people what they're thinking about, letting them talk about what's important to them. And then you see that in certain um, time periods that the, the personal and political are so fused because it's just a charged time. And I found that really powerful. And then the, on the other hand, I'm sometimes like more drawn to something that's, that is very aggressive in some ways like I, I wanted to to bring up Moonlight and yeah. the 13th which almost in in the unsubtlety of my choice because these are <laughs> it, it reflects what I'm talking about that it we're in a time where it's okay to state the obvious sometimes yeah. <laughs> like things that I felt like so for example talking about representation th there was a, a, a peer like I think before this time I was more conscientious about like not being that girl I didn't want to be that person who's who harps on that topic and then I feel so so um, empowered in the idea that that is in fact important and that it does uh, prevent this kind of ability to, to dismiss people as other, um, that I am completely fine with being that girl. And that's what makes both of those movies interesting to me. So Moonlight obviously in not being explicitly or even intentionally political at all, but it just sort of proves again the point that if you live in a racist society that simply creating a complex work of art about people of color is in itself an act of resistance. And the, the filmmaker Barry Jenkins does not, you know, he sort of, I think, evades the political question a little bit in a way that I, I totally understand and think is, is smart because it's not exactly what he made the, the film about. But, it, but again, it, it ended up opening up this world that we don't, you know, we don't normally get to see the people in the film treated in the way they are treated in the film. And then the 13th is something that I might have thought of as maybe a little inelegant or sort of too, too on the nose at times. And I don't think that it's a perfect film, but I did find it really moving. And I did see it just before, um, but it, it opened the New York Film Festival. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it was still close enough to um, the mounting horror to come that I remember thinking, like, I know that this, in a way, is like creating a very... Um, like explicit essay and that it's reiterating a point over and over but it felt so good to have somebody do that I wanted somebody to do that and to recontextualize what we normally see as like news clips or YouTube clips in a more sort of sweeping historical approach so right. it's structural like emphasizing that there are structures in place and not just the idea that the president would ask a black journalist to set up a meeting with <laughs> somebody for him and like everything so loaded as fucked up as that it's like well okay so there's so there's that and then there's structures like i think we also have to get a little bit away from the sort of liberal progressive self-hatred of assuming that anything we think is good only lives in our bubble i mean right. i have no idea who's seeing 13th or moonlight so i'm not inclined to say that those movies are only reaching people who already agree with them i think that's the great thing about movies is that I'm also not inclined to say that movies that reach only people who agree with them are bad. I think there's, you know, value in rousing the, the choir at points. I mean, I didn't pick those movies because, as you said, when I saw them before the election, we were already aware enough of what was at stake and the mounting horror to come that they felt like, as, as so much good art often feels, they felt resonant then and resonant now. You know, maybe enriched in some ways by 
by what we now know and what we've learned along the way, but I couldn't think of things that suddenly pivoted 180 degrees from irrelevant to relevant or that suddenly lost all of their relevance. But I did think of a couple of movies that I like. I'm suddenly aware I have no appetite to re-see in, <laughs> in this current moment. I mean, I, I thought about Thelma and Louise, um, which is a movie I like and which I think for uh, 26 or 27 years ago had real resonance about, you know, how to, about reacting to a kind of structurally and inherently unjust patriarchal society on a very personal level. And this is not a slam at Susan Sarandon, but right now, a nihilistic, fuck it all, flourish of self-destruction at the end feels like the least valuable thing I can draw from a movie. It's not an interesting resolution to me the way it was maybe in 1992 when I was a lot younger. And um, the other movie I think I really can't look at right now is Election. Yes. Um, <laughs> which is a movie I really liked, Alexander Payne's movie, which... Um, I had to look it up to see where in the history of Hillary Clinton it landed. And it's at the very end of her first ladyship, um, like year seven. It's really interesting to Google the name Tracy Flick, which is the name of the character Reese Witherspoon plays. Google that name next to any female politician. And you see a whole series of slurs. It was applied to Hillary Clinton. It was applied to Sarah Palin. It was applied really, really heavily to Kirsten Gillibrand when she first mm -hmm. made her interest in Hillary Clinton's seat known in 2009. And I think we all see this if we look at Saturday Night Live. If you're going after something satirically, you really, really have to know exactly what your target is. And yeah. if you miss a little the way like sexualizing Kellyanne Conway as a demented stalker <sighs> in Fatal Attraction was like the wrong point, the or, wrong thing to go after. Or that she's somehow regretting this, like that the usually player is like, oh, gee, what did I get into? It's right, like, like know, know your target and yeah. know what you want to say. And, and to me, suddenly right now, the idea of making fun of a really ruthless female politician who is super prepared and maybe a little bit of a non-functioning personality but god she will do anything to win eh like <laughs> you know okay i'll vote for tracy flick you know uh if the alternative is kind of fact-free vicious nihilism i'm really wary of uh, penalizing any movie for not having the esp to understand what was going to happen over the 18 years after it was made um so uh, you know i think You're very generous you know well i think alexander payne is talented and I, I think it's a terrible form of criticism to you know i just saw this beautiful restoration of mildred pierce which is mm -hmm. going to come out on uh, criterion in a couple of months and you know it's sexual politics are like not woke but it's <laughs> 72 years old mm -hmm. so i generally feel like judge a movie on its own terms but but for me right now th those are just two movies i thought of that stuck in my throat a little bit mm -hmm. I, I happily go back to them in a happier time mm -hmm. if we get there yeah i think it's interesting that history keeps or and film history keeps coming up in this conversation because i mean for me one of the things that felt again very urgent was the historical value of film is itself a historical record. So even if it's a fiction film, I don't mean necessarily documentary, but it tells us of a time and a place. And it's not the film's fault that it can feel incongruous. It can't predict um, these events in the future. 
And I'm reminded of the James Baldwin quote from I'm Not Your Negro when he says, history is not in the past, it's in the present. And this, is, again, it feels like uh, especially resonant for our moment to consider what moments in history feel opened up or revealed by what's happening now, what feel distasteful or we don't want to visit them. Um, so my second film was a documentary from a couple of years ago called Let the Fire Burn. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, I, in fact, hadn't seen it until after the election. And I was, I, I, I'm still stunned. I think I'll forever be scarred by this movie. Um, do you know this film? It's, um, it's a documentary about a, a, a militant uh, commune group called MOVE that was, had a house and lived in, and they were in West Philadelphia, African-American group, some ties to the Panthers. So in the mid-70s through the early 80s, they lived in the house and they, they were really weird. I mean, they just had a highly idiosyncratic way of living. And the city of Philadelphia cracked down on them uh, by dropping a, a bomb on the top of their house. They lived in the middle of this dense, black, working-class neighborhood, dropped the bomb on the house that included, I think, uh, six children who died in, the, in this fire. And famously, the police commissioner said, we're gonna let the fire burn. Instead of just putting that fire out, let that fire burn, and it burned uh, 61 homes over the course of a day. And it's so pertinent now because, I mean, for many reasons, but for this willingness on the part of a government to exert its force, its murderous force, um, indiscriminately, right? So the target is move, whatever you feel about their politics, it's one thing, but their neighbors, right? People who have nothing to do with them and the willingness to just accept as collateral damage people who have nothing to do with the, the target at hand. To me, that was a lesson in, uh, uh, or a renewed call for something like solidarity or made me think about what solidarity means as far as putting oneself out there for someone who is not you, who is not your family, but your neighbor, someone who does not have necessarily the same interests as you, but because we are all under this peril, right? If the government in, uh, I think it was 1985 also, uh, is willing to do this under a black mayor in Philadelphia, where are we now with this? And I, I worry that we, if we're not vigilant about this, we, are, we can end up in the same place. I mean, speaking of firebombing, this Friday, Milo Yiannopoulos was on Bill Maher and thinking about other instances of giving platforms to people who are literally Nazis. And again, and also sort of thinking about who makes decisions that we don't always see in government that have very real implications. I revisited Errol Morris's Fog of War and also The Unknown Known. And I couldn't get through The Unknown Known. <laughs> I just got, it was really upsetting but that's an interest just sort of thinking about how errol morris approaches the gives someone like that a platform gives donald rumsfeld a platform and you get to see him talk about how they had good intelligence about where saddam hussein was and how they bombed the hell out of this farm and they took some guy out on a stretcher but it wasn't saddam and he smiles and it's like you killed somebody you don't know who they are and you still G shucks, like, and that's the reaction. And it's like, how is this person not in prison? <laughs> how is this? How are not all of these guys in jail right now? You know, part of the reason why somebody like Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, all of those 
Nixon ghouls, <laughs> Ford ghouls, uh, didn't, you know, got to a second chance at things was because, you know, um, no one held them accountable. And that was something that the, you know, the administration that came after them made, basically, where it's like, and, and that's true of, you know, Bill Clinton in 92, he could have held all of the people responsible for Iran-Contra responsible, and he didn't. And they all came back in these different forums during the Bush years. And like thinking about accountability and like Robert McNamara, he looked at the data and the way that he looked at the data led a general to say, oh, instead of bombing Tokyo with bombs, let's firebomb them. And the, the incredible amount of loss of life that meant. And there's this amazing sequence where Errol Morris juxtaposes the loss of life and destruction of cities of these different Japanese cities with America. So you see how much of Toledo is destroyed, how much of New York is destroyed. And it's like insane. But also that life came back. People, people in those countries came back. And Vietnam, which was bombed more than all of Europe was, like three times more during the Second World War, came back and thrives now. It's like dark, but also you have to have some hope that life goes on. Yeah, I, 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 and I, I think that as a filmmaker to bring up Errol Morris is, is such an interesting case for, 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 for this. Um, I mean, I mean, as a filmmaker, he, I think he would love to make a documentary about Trump uh, oh, yeah. at some point, like a, it would be like the, the McNamara documentary a little bit or the Rumsfeld one after the fact, or he would have liked to make one if he had not become president or something, you know, as a character study it would be interesting. I call them characters because when you know Errol Morris does a documentary about someone, he's creating a character as much as he's you know chronicling someone. Those are characters that come from a different culture of power in a yeah. way from Trump. So it's interesting to think about those now. Like McNamara and Rumsfeld, they come from more like uh, institutional or bureaucratic culture of, of mm -hmm. power. Um, so I guess it's just a different kind of callousness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Trump seems to come more from just like. Extreme narcissism, oblivious, uh, you know, the boardroom grifter, you know, or, or just kind of all American con man thing, which seems to hold like a tragic attraction, a fatal attraction yeah. for the American people. Like people seem to like to be sold to. Um, I mean, I guess everyone does. I guess I do to a certain extent in terms of movies, you know. So it's just interesting to think about that. What would Errol Morris's approach be for Trump before and, and after in a way? Yeah him as a character himself uh, yeah. and i say this because you know he has a very um uh well-known larger than life persona and and that is a little bit performative in terms of being curmudgeonly and that's the guy who he is but he's been like popping off on twitter about how he is at a loss to mm -hmm. um rely on his uh, usual um, sharp irony to, you know, you keep saying like, I'm disappointed in myself for being unable to like stem my sincere disappointment and, and disturbed feelings about the, the politics of the last few months. So, it's, so it would be interesting to see how that eventually funnels into a film of some kind because he does seem to be at a little bit of a loss. Because I mean, he obviously he did that great portrait of Donald Trump many years ago where he talks, Donald Trump talks about his favorite film, Citizen Kane, and uh, <laughs> shudder. Forgot about that. Yeah. And of course, you know, I t I actually talked with Errol Morris about this when he was on the podcast, like a a few weeks, I guess, before the election. And you know, we made a joke where it's like, well, Donald Trump's mo problem with the movie, you know, he just should have gotten a new wife. We have the before. We're just waiting for Errol Morris to do an after. 
it's also comforting to hear somebody like Errol Morris I have great a tremendous amount of respect for and it's like okay well if he's stumped then I don't feel so bad about being stumped and fucking lost either so you know I hear this from a lot of filmmakers and a lot of writers uh, and and playwrights and dramatists and there are many many people who are trying to figure out what their what their contribution can be um, in the next four years and I have to say like you could go from room like this to room like this it through New York City every night for the next month and hear like some art in the resistance panel yep and it's gotten to the point where I sort of hear that phrase and I think, you know, art in the resistance will be bad art. Like you, you can't remember all the great art that came from George W. Bush's presidency. Right. I mean, well, I I just think like working backwards from the desired political effect, you want something you create to have on the audience is like an almost sure way to create something terrible. And I, I think the truth is that like we don't know what, creatively is going to come out of this yet it's fascinating to me we're seeing it like on a level of late night television for instance um Stephen Colbert is suddenly outrating Jimmy Fallon for the first time since they were both head to head Stephen Mm -hmm. Colbert turns out to be a better product for the Trump era than Jimmy Fallon Seth Meyers who really kind of seemed to not know who he was for the first couple of years of his show, now absolutely does. But Seth Meyers' show is working, for instance, because he's figured out that he can be who he actually is, which is someone who reads the paper and sucks up all the news during the day and is interested in talking about it, not because he's reshaped himself into some new commodity for the the Trump era. And I feel like the same thing is maybe going to apply to filmmakers, albeit on a much, much slower basis because films take forever to get right. made. Like we don't we don't know what's going to resonate in movies, but anything we see in the next year in movies that resonates is going to resonate by accident because right. it was made and done, you know, already. And and so whatever is being hatched now that we're going to see around the midterms, who can even imagine how relevant that will or will not feel or how much we'll want to engage with it because right now a lot of people i know are in this incredible they have this deep appetite to see things that will help them find their way through this to 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 experience art and documentaries that will make them feel more engaged history sort of tells us that that can go away at the drop of a hat that the the line between give me something I can use and I've had it, just give me an outdoor for a couple of hours, it can pivot so quickly. Um, it did during World War II. It, it, during Vietnam, it never even, like, in movies never even got to Vietnam until after Vietnam was over. I'm just really aware of the fact that w- when we think about, like, what kind of art needs to be made, we're, we're feeling in the dark as guessers as much as the artists are feeling in the dark as artists. I share a lot of that concern. And one th- one thing I'm, I guess, worried about or don't want to see happen anyway on the cultural landscape, the art and filmmaking landscape, is a narrowing of the horizon to strictly instrumental or agitprop or you know um, didactic documentaries all the time. I know I've only been talking about documentaries tonight, but uh, I would hate to lose uh, a sense of form and aesthetics as like deeply tied to politics if, if, if they want that to be the case. 
um, as the kind of the whole expressive range of what art and film should be. And that's always kind of a nebulous, hard to pin down proposition. Um, but what we do know about film and art is it is they are ways in which we learn and experience and move through a time and a place. I think we would all be remiss if suddenly everything felt purposeful, right? Everything right. had to be purposeful and predetermine what, what the intent would be and to lose that sense of, of freedom, expressive freedom. Right, and also to be skeptical of who is making it and why, because I mean like, for instance, the Lego Batman movie, which I'm sure everyone here has seen, right? Like, that movie is produced by like a top Trump goon, right? But it has it has elements that are like totally critical of someone who is a rich guy buffoon. We live in a time where it's like, you know, we have this marketplace where we it's even more segmented than ever, and like you can really get whatever you want. But who is really benefiting from it? Is it like someone you actually agree with, or they just sort of like give this to the people and give and get get a reward? Mark, I think the the way that you phrased it about picking a starting point and working your way back, I completely agree with, is not not a great way of, <laughs> of trying to respond to a sort of troubling political time. But it, I, I do find as a filmmaker that it's hard not to be influenced or find what I'm doing to shift in any way whatsoever. And I, I actually um, talked about Violet with this on an earlier podcast that was shortly after the election, in which I, I, I spent election day uh, shooting for a film I'm making in rural Texas, which was deeply upsetting um, just because I wasn't expecting things to take the turn they did. We were filming with a lesbian couple who voted for Trump and in this way where as a documentarian, I, I, I don't personally buy into ob objectivity as a necessity of documentary filmmaking, but I do believe in sort of being a vessel and being able to, to listen and have a conversation in a less reactionary way and I found myself less and less able to do so over the course of the day. Um, and most of the previous films I've made are about white working class communities. And it's interesting to be a, a Muslim first generation queer woman who makes movies about these like working class white communities and believing really deeply in this idea that dismissal is not an effective tool of resistance, that if you take the language of your oppressor, then you're not going to um, help in long-term change. But in the short term, I'm really fucking pissed. And it's hard yeah. to engage in the way that I used to, I think. I'm really struggling to make this film. And I think we had a sense that so one of the things that's interesting in this town is that there's a really changing demographic. It was very homogeneously white at some point, and now there's a big Latino and uh, black population. And the way that I may have made films, it's like, well, that'll just show. Like, we don't have to seek that out in any way. And I don't feel right doing it quite like that. I'm not saying I want to make a film in which we explicitly talk about Trump or, as you said, work, work your way backwards from the things that are on your mind, but I feel that I have to do something a little bit differently or, or, I, or I've been irresponsible. Yeah, it seems to me like the, the struggle is good. Everyone should be struggling right now. Journalists should be struggling to figure out, like me, you know, how much of an activist you are and how much of a journalist you are. Filmmakers like you should be struggling with what what the role of their voice and their perspective is in in what they're doing, and but I love the idea, as you said, of you know, one way we're going to get through this is by saying that no matter what has changed, interesting creative people must still be free to pursue what they're interested in, and if they're interesting, chances are I will be interested. They will make me interested in what they're interested in, and it may have political resonance that 
they didn't expect or see coming or or i may see you know it may resonate for me in a political way that it wasn't in your game plan but if we start saying the only things we should produce are things of use yeah. then we will become the perfect tools of our future russian overlords i mean it's you know it's not a good it's not a good roadmap for us i think I had programmed a series this past fall at Anthology um, through the Flaherty Film Seminar, and Colleen Smith was one of our filmmakers that we brought out. And she finished a film. She, we were going to do a world premiere on her December 12th show, and then the election happened. And she was emailing me and my co-programmer saying, I don't know how to work right now. Uh, I don't know how to finish this film. We're like, please, please, please do something. We just want to see anything from you. And what she produced uh, was this film called Sign at the Canyon, Sign at the Sea. And it's this struggling with that's in the film that I think is really amazing. That uh, She uses this persona that she's adopted before called Gel Kelly Gibran. And Kelly is like sassy and pissed off. And it's just kind of like, I'm so appreciative of putting this persona and this anger in the film as a response, as a person, right? Even though it's a persona, to put that in the film and have it there just a very short, you know, just a few weeks after this shock that we were still reeling from. So there's there's a lot of different ways to to respond. What you were saying about you know we don't want to narrow the field in terms of how people approach films because well I, I just find that if anything and I've. I, always uh, appreciated different approaches and originally came from more of an experimental film background. But uh, in the same way that I kind of responded to the, the questions of the panel more in terms of these like personal feelings about representation, sort of like small acts of resistance, I feel the same about like everything that's a little bit rule breaking. Like I like just more experimental film, more weird ways of doing things. I'm I feel like I'm returning to uh, greater appreciation for that rather than the opposite, rather than only being able to see films that are explicitly political as being of value or, or in some sort of tra traditional um, agitprop way like you were talking about. It's like anything can be a, an act of resistance. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I think form is the vehicle. It shouldn't be empty formalism, which is this yeah. uh, straw man thing that has, we've been kicking around for a while. But form is absolutely the way in which politics and feeling get articulated. I just wanted to say in relation to this that I think one really important thing is artists need to be given room to fail. Yeah. Um, and and there's a real temptation to say, you know, we're in a state of emergency, nail it 100% or go home. And um, <laughs> that will have a very stifling effect if we try to enact it. Like, I don't particularly like the way Doris Day is used in I Am Not Your Negro. I think it's the weakest moment of the movie. It's sort of a glib appropriation of, you know, what can I find that's super, super white to make this point. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take away an iota from the fact that it's an essential and superb movie. People are going to miss, you know, that we're, gonna, we're all going to get stuff wrong, just like journalists, you know, we've all had... Uh, corrections to our name that just make us cringe but you know I think the fact that we live in politically exigent times doesn't mean we suspend generosity I mean we, we have to give people room to like try and miss or almost get it but get something really wrong in the course of getting most of it really right because otherwise people are just going to be 
the people we need to be creating things are going to be paralyzed with fear and self-consciousness. Well, we have to kind of wrap up, unfortunately. But Can we take a question or two from the audience? Yeah. Does anybody have any questions? Hi. So I'm wondering what the panel's view is about Michael Moore's films. I haven't heard him mentioned, and I was a little perplexed over the last one he made about Hillary Clinton in, where, in Ohio. I didn't see that because I'm I'm generally anti Michael Moore because because he's he's more of an entertainer than he's he, I just I just see him I'll answer your question by telling a story so he came to the New York Film Festival a year two years ago and he was presenting um, Where to Invade Next and he comes out and this is in Alice Tully Hall and he's wearing his trucker hat his like crappy jeans his old shoes and his oversized t-shirt and he just sort of shuffles out and he's like oh gee folks i'm so glad that you come out and see my movie and he's doing this act and he's trying and he's just like really performing this version of god's country like he's pretending to be this guy when he really lives in like a penthouse on the upper east side like his movies make a tremendous amount of money and he's speaking for the little guy and sometimes it's and sometimes he makes totally valid points but in his films, there's so much about him and so much about that persona that the message gets lost. And it's like, if you watch Where to Invade Next, he's completely fudging all these details. He's talking about the school system in Finland and there's this chart and I'll never forget this. It's just like, it's straight up, it's something Donald Trump would do. Where it's like, there's, there's no Y, the Y axis is not labeled and the X axis is and it's like, grades and it's like the american grades go down and the finnish grades go up and it's like well what time period is this what is the context for any of this it's just like i'm sorry if you want to convince people you need to do better like you can't just sort of and they're not even very good appeals to emotion like i think there is value in appeals to emotion i do believe that populism works and like midwest is like the home of populism very radical populism and you still see it in the way that people don't necessarily fall into this two-party system but like Michael Moore, I mean, I just like, I can't take those movies. And I really, I just, anytime I see him on TV, I get super nervous because I'm like, what are you saying? <laughs> I mean, I think, I think one thing with Michael Moore is that film is a really inefficient delivery system if you want to make a point right away. Yes. It's like, it's hard. It takes a long time. By the time it gets to the screen, any filmmaker who's making a, trying to make a really politically resonant movie already wants to change 20 things that have come up since then. Mm -hmm. And so in, in a way, I mean, I think Michael Moore can only be Michael Moore. You know, he uses the, the tools and the tone and the approach that's at his disposal. But in some way, I think this is a very inexact comparison, but people can turn to Rachel Maddow any night and get yeah. an hour long take on the news of that day, almost as it's happening. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, if you want your sense of outrage inflamed, that will mainline into your system much mm -hmm. faster than a Michael Moore movie, which is about what he was really pissed off about six months ago. Right. Um, so I think if I struggle with his movies at this point, that might be why. Yeah. And at the same time, when he does hit, I mean, Fahrenheit 9-11 remains the top grossing documentary ever. Tens of millions of dollars are just unheard of something that's it's unheard of for a documentary that's not about yeah. whales or the stars to be that much <laughs> money so you know who knows maybe somehow this this climate he'll he'll, he'll thrive again somehow right. it's it's it but it's true it's hard to 
And I will also say, I won't make fun of Mike Moore anymore. I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> I just know, but there's a part, there's another part in um, Where to Invade Next where I found just totally grotesque, where he's talking about the prison system in Norway and how the prisoners, like there's this welcome video where the guards are singing to the incoming prisoners and it's sort of like, welcome to the prison. And they're singing this, I don't even remember what standard it is. It's like some old jazz standard. And then he takes their singing and juxtaposes it with police brutality. And it's like, you're taking away this person's humanity twice. You're showing this, this person being brutally, this prisoner being brutally beaten by guards. And it's like this counterpoint where it's ironic and fun. And it's like, no, it's not, there's nothing fucking funny about this. Like, don't do, don't do that. Should we go around and do the last film we've seen that we liked? Something recent? I could just do mine and then everyone can leave. <laughs> everyone can just leave. Well, I, so I'm doing this thing where um, it's called America Heard. It's sort of this web, I don't want to call it a web series, but it's a series of documentaries about different uh, precincts across the US. And one that I saw recently was called The Game. And it's in Ohio, and um, it's basically the director, she went home for Thanksgiving, after the election, obviously, and she went to this Ohio State versus Michigan game, and she interviewed all these different people who are just out there tailgating um, a religion unto itself, speaking of religion. And there's this incredible moment where these two black women are talking, and this group of white guys comes over and just totally fucking interrupts them. And they're just sort of like, well, you think the racism is coming from your side or from our side? And it's just like every horrible thing that you could think of like a white male saying to a black woman kind of happens. Like very, and you see that again, it's like, what is racism? Oh, it's structures and it's also like ignorance. It's just these guys don't know how to talk about race because no one is taught them how to talk about race and they just they have fundamental misunderstandings and it's like when people want to come back with all lives matter or blue lives matter it's because they don't understand that black lives matter is not saying only black lives matter but that it's a plea for a recognition of humanity <laughs> and like it's just you get to see this moment and it's it's horrifying but it's also very educational and it's like the impossible question to answer would be would they have come over if it was two black men talking to the camera about race that's an impossible question to answer but it's like i i think it's a this short film called the game very good go watch it on america heard can i say something about god's country yes a movie i saw an hour ago yes so very recently um <laughs> the, the louis mall film the documentary that just played i loved it i actually watched it twice so i watched it last night also and I, in part because I, I was born in June of 1979, so the, the first segment um, takes place. So immediately I'm thinking about what this country looks like at the moment, like I, I've entered it. Uh, and it's unrecognizable. I think, uh, I grew up in the Midwest also, so it wasn't so far from my experience, but I just found it so good-hearted and sensitive and very, very subtly I guess political, but the, the politics of the film are just kind of on the fringes of it for me in a way that is not being like hammered home. Uh, but this question of how does change happen and how do you perceive it, I thought was handled so uh, so well in that film. I could say a lot about it, but it, I'm still digesting it. It's respectful too, I think, which is like a huge thing. 
I'll pick a movie that played at the Sundance Film Festival this year as a documentary premiere, but that you can all see if you go on the uh, PBS website, um, which is this documentary called Oklahoma City. This is a movie that it's about the Oklahoma City bombing, obviously, and um, it does something that I think very few documentaries do well, which is take a very specific historical incident and present it in detail while also connecting it to larger historical trends. It was a movie that surprised me in terms of its post-Trump resonance in that it draws, without uh, pushing it too hard, it draws like a 30-year line about um, white supremacist and white nationalist rural pockets of resistance as an ongoing narrative in America that far precedes Oklahoma City and then rolls on after it. So I've been watching a lot of incredibly bleak documentaries extremely late at night before going to bed, which I do not recommend. You wake up in a terrible mood without knowing why, but um, Oklahoma City is, is one I would definitely say is worth checking out. Further to the idea that being artistically radical is also important in a way of resisting. Um, I saw a shorts program at BAM by a filmmaker named Camille Billops, who I had not known yes. of before, and it totally blew my mind. Um, I was so upset and angry that I hadn't heard of her before, and I'm not sure where these films are available, but what I loved is that even, again, they're, they're pretty personal stories, most of her films, but feel radical because she clearly has complete ownership over how she tells them. She very casually uses these techniques um, in ways that you're, you know, you're traditionally told not to. Like, okay, if you're going to do stage moments in a documentary, it has to be something that you do throughout. And she's like, no, I'm just going to do it this one time, and that's totally fine. That's the only time that I need it. I can have jumps in time. I don't have to create it like a very clean fictional narrative arc of a novel. Um, it was really beautiful and inspiring to see that. And it also reminded me that she's doing these sort of um, hybrid um, doc narrative moves that are, are very popularly discussed. And she made these films in the 80s and 90s, so that I'm not even saying that that was the first time that that occurred. But it, I think it was certainly an important moment in the timeline of, of these uh, approaches and that I haven't heard her talked about enough in this regard. Um, and she does happen to be a, a black woman. And a lot of these techniques are being ascribed to um, white male documentarians now. Um, and then I, because I'm not sure where you find that, I'm also going to mention a, a short that is actually a New York Times Opdocs short um, by a filmmaker named Garrett Bradley called Alone, about um, a woman who's uh, married to a man who's incarcerated. And it's really lovely. The last film I saw was also God's Country, so I'll go one back, one back before that, uh, which was also a film in Film Comment Selects, uh, All These Sleepless Nights, uh, mm -hmm. which I saw last night by Polish filmmaker Michal Marsak. And um, it's about, it basically follows a couple of, couple of young guys in Warsaw uh, on a party scene. And, a party, and it's just about this kind of age of dreaming and staying up late and you know, trying to pick up girls and talking late into the night and thinking everything you say is profound. And, you know, and it, it, by the end, he's just sitting in a garden in a bunny suit, telling people how wonderful they look who are walking by. So it's just this wonderful kind of open, open hearted, open minded, open ended um, feel to it. And then what made the movie really poignant was that the director explained that when he shot it, he I mean, he's from Poland. And when he shot it, there was that feeling of openness. But right as he finished the, making that movie, the political regime changed and into a hard right-wing regime 
um, and that is sort of systematically, you know, rolling back any any sort of you know reactionary politics and policies. So that movie now becomes this kind of time capsule mm -hmm. <laughs> of, of, of a moment for, for the filmmaker and, and I guess for people who, who might recognize it. So another interesting before and after example. Yeah. We're not the only place this is happening to, but thank you all for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs>